0: Welcome to Sex, Love, and Liberation, with yours truly, Michelle Casey. Hello, delicious people. I am really excited about the conversation that is about to unfold with my very special guest. She sits before me in our new podcast recording studio space, and she has a presence And whilst you can't see her, I am sure you will feel it through her elegant and articulate voice. Here to talk about the weird and wonderful world of BDSM is professional dominatrix, Lady Catherine. Welcome to the Sex, Love and Liberation podcast. I'm so delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting
1: me on. And I'm so excited to talk about possibly my favorite thing in the
0: whole world. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so let's set the scene. For anyone who might not know, what is BDSM? So
1: BDSM is an acronym which stands for Bondage, Discipline, Sadism and Masochism. And while those four things are some of the activities that people might get up to when they say they participate in BDSM, there are various other things that that acronym doesn't cover as well, which would be part of it. So it's really, I'd say, a sort of non-normative sexual desire. But it's not absolutely always sexual either, just to be extra confusing. But (laughs) really, you know it when you see it.
0: Mm, I love that. You know it when you see it. And that's so true that it can be a part of sex uh if we think of sex as say like the physical act of sex and can be a whole other thing outside of that as well so tell us about your bdsm beginnings what pulled you into this world and what were maybe some milestones along your journey from beginner to being a pro dom well my very first boyfriend was kinky,
1: and I knew this before, there were rumours, before I (laughs) started dating him, and that was something that fascinated me because I'd always been drawn to the strange, the taboo, the more other people didn't want to talk about it, the more I was intrigued by it. So I was like, oh, this sounds like fun, and then maybe I'll get to experience some other sex and other, you know, extra special sex things on top of that as well. So I just started my relationship with him and we didn't do any kink at all, I think for at least the first year as I was kind of getting used to everything, building trust, all of that stuff, which is really important. And then one day he blindfolded me and tied me up very sort of traditional style, spread-eagled on the bed and put on Moonlit Sonata, which was one of his favorite tracks, (laughs) and basically did a tie-and-tease scene. And I loved it, and I was just intrigued to explore this world more and more. And we did Kink Together for a long time. We were monogamous for a long time. And... Later on, we um, decided to open our relationship because I was bisexual and wanted to not go to my grave having never tasted a pussy. (laughs) I decided I couldn't live like that, so we opened up our relationship and most of that time I'd been doing submissive and he had been playing the dominant role. When we opened our relationship, we also then considered exploring the public kink scene So we went to a munch, which is a non-sexual kinky gathering where you normally, it's at a pub in the day and you just wear normal clothes and you just talk and it's a good chance to meet people. So we went to a munch, first of all, in Auckland because the thought of going to a kink party was terrifying (laughs) and everyone was really friendly and so we decided to go to a party and It was just an opportunity to see lots of different types of play that we hadn't tried ourselves. Like at play parties, there's a lot of impact play normally, which is like spanking, flogging, caning, anything which is hitting the body. And that was fascinating. And another of the areas which we were drawn to was shibari. There's normally a corner where people are being suspended at these events or doing other rope work. So I was like, ooh. And I just ran around trying all the things. Um, I did what's called in the scene sub-frenzy, which is when new (laughs) people come and they see all the pretty shiny things and they get very excited and they must try everything. And at a public event, you can do all that without it being sexual. So someone can just tie you up and they're not going to do anything other than that or they can spank you. But that's all. So it's a really good way to try some things without having to have sex with a lot of strangers or anything like that, which I didn't realise before I went into the scene. (laughs) But yeah, that um, disconnect, often at public events between the kink and the sex, but that means it's much easier to learn and much easier to experiment without having to do things that you don't want to do. And so I ran around, I did all the things. I started learning about the things. There's a group of dominant women who started running events and workshops and they called themselves the FDC, the Femdom Connection. And I was like, ooh, that <laughs> sounds fun. I will join. I'm not really a dom. I identified as a switch um, at sort of when I was entering the scene, but I hadn't done much doming. So a switch means someone who can do a submissive or a dominant role in a scene, but it was more a switch in principle rather than in practice. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to get some more in-practice experience. And the FDC did various workshops and someone else actually purchased me at the slave auction and spanked me and he did a great job and I asked him <laughs> to teach me his ways. So he did that for me. And I was just learning the skills I needed to um, dorm confidently in a few different areas and just seeing role models of other females taking on that role and seeing that they're not all the cliche Some of them certainly are, but you see lots of ways to be and lots of ways to be dominant, and that really helped me see a route for me if I wasn't just going to scream insults at someone and make them lick my boots and crawl around on the floor. Mm -hmm. Like, what other styles of dominance are there? And I saw things which resonated with me and that I could see myself doing. So I had the sort of skills and the confidence to try and do some more doming myself at that point. And I had a very lovely submissive who was my first and he let me practice on him and was very tolerant. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just learned on him. And that was a really nice experience for a few years. And then eventually, for other reasons, I decided to try going pro. I just put up an advert and I didn't know if anyone would come, but they did. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the rest is history.
0: <laughs> what a fantastic story. There were so many moments in there where my body had such a visceral response. Moonlight Sonata is one of my all-time favorite songs, so I just love that your entry into this world was being spread good to that song. <laughs> yes. So... This is a two-part question. What does a professional dominatrix actually do? And what might you say about the interesting intersection between kink and sex work? So
1: I like to describe what I do, or myself, as a fantasy fulfillment expert. Mm. So I try and understand an experience the client wants to have and a headspace they want to enter and I basically try and craft that for them and with them so it's obviously very varied because people have very different desires and you know some things are really sort of I wouldn't call them tame but mild by kink standards and then some things are very extreme and there's all kinds of shades in the middle And so it's really me facilitating them having whatever experience they've been fantasizing about. Mm. So it's quite the challenge and quite the responsibility. Mm -hmm. And I feel it's a great honor and a privilege to do this and having feedback afterwards when people are like, you've changed my life and stuff. It's amazing. (laughs) It's just so rewarding to create that like life altering experience for someone Mm. But it's a lot of responsibility, and I try not to think about it too much. Mm -hmm. Or I would get far too anxious to do a good job. Um, But, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun figuring things out and thinking. Sometimes they come up with all kinds of requests. Some of them are more feasible than others. So sometimes (laughs) it's all, okay, what's actually going to happen? What's feasibly, physically possible in the material realm Some of their fantasies can get, you know, you can see they've been fantasizing about them for a long time and they haven't thought about how one might actually go about doing such (laughs) a thing. (laughs) So sometimes I have some interesting problems to solve. Let's put it like that. (laughs) But I like that.
0: What an amazing opportunity to connect with your creativity. (laughs)
1: Yes, definitely. Uh, One definitely has to be uh, creative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... (laughs) Also, just playful. I like to think about it playtime for adults. It's an escape. I try not to take it too seriously. Mm-hmm. I try to always treat people's fantasies and fetishes with respect and reverence, but I think there's plenty of room for fun in play. Mm-hmm. And that it can be a nice sort of energetic exchange as well. It doesn't just have to be me doing all the sort of emotional labor of creating the scene.
0: Yes, I so feel that. That's one of my core philosophies working with people, but also in my own personal sex life, kinky life, sensual life, is how much play can we bring into this? I think there's such an over-seriousness that we can pull into sex. And for me, that's one of my favorite things about kink, is it's this expansive playground where... You know, the limitless options that we can feel inside of the sexual playground are just absolutely expanded so much when you enter the kink realm as well.
1: Yes, it definitely sort of exponentially increases all the scenarios that one can explore. (laughs) It's very exciting.
0: (laughs) And so the second part of this question, what might you say about the intersection between kink and sex work? Well, I
1: personally identify as a sex worker. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Not every kink professional necessarily would agree with me. But just based on my experience, so many, probably 95% of my clients, it is definitely a sexual thing for them. So, And I also, because I don't think there's any shame in sex work and that it shouldn't be stigmatized, I actually want to proudly identify that way Mm -hmm. rather than try and be like, oh, it's not. Cause that means that's a bad thing mm. and I don't think that sex work is a bad thing. I think it's a great thing and I think to be in those spaces with those people when they're so vulnerable is a very special thing. that's really underrated by society.
0: Mm. Mm. Beautifully said. Kink is obviously surrounded by a lot of stigma and you've alluded in what you've shared so far to how that can make having kinks quite difficult I wonder what are some of the common stigmas that you see and what might you have to say about overcoming them
1: so I find with a lot of my clients sometimes they stigmatize themselves Mm. they very commonly stigmatize themselves they know their desires are non-normative. Often they've had these desires, especially for males, just in my experience, from a very young age, sometimes pre-puberty, and they sometimes hate themselves for it, or at least very uncomfortable with that aspect of themselves. And often I get older people come to me they've been through a long process of work where they've had to face up and accept their fetishes their desires whatever they might be and they've normally got to a place where they're much happier with them but yeah some people earlier in their journey and certainly some younger people really do struggle with them and i think that that's just a general sex negativity anyway magnified for anything odd or weird or unusual. And like sometimes they've had experiences where their parents have become aware mm-hmm. and they've been shamed by their parents. Some people have been shamed by their partners, or their partners have found out, or it's been a secret. Sometimes they've got in like trouble at work, depending on mm-hmm. um, if they've You know, being able to manage them in an appropriate way. Let's put it like that. Some have lost relationships because of people's responses to their kinks and fetishes. So there's a lot of sort of self-flagellation in the Mm. bad sense about this. (laughs) And a lot of external um, difficulties that they've had. And bad reactions from various people that and really make them quite miserable. Some people feel sort of quite tormented by their kinks. And sometimes that sort of shame can be erotically used Mm -hmm. as part of our scenes. And I think some people can do some processing through that, through reclaiming that in a way where they are actually enjoying it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's more of a case of just that self-acceptance. And often they'll ask me, which I think is very telling, like, do you meet any other people with this fetish? That's a question I often get asked. And I almost always say yes, Mm. because they never are as weird as they think they are. Mm. There are obviously some fetishes which were a fetish too far, which I'm sure are all the obvious ones. But there are, there's a lot of stuff which is really harmless, but which normal society doesn't respond well to. Yes. And yeah, people definitely really struggle with that. And I think one of the benefits of engaging with it is you get acceptance, you get community, you get meet to meet other people like you, you feel you're less alone, that you're less of a freak, and that maybe this isn't something wrong with you. And I try and reframe it as this is an extra cool thing mm. that you can play with and maybe if it's approached a different way, it can actually enhance your life rather than be a problem to work around.
0: Mm, Wow, that actually sends shivers through my body. I, oh, you know, we're exposed to so many narratives about kink and BDSM that pathologize them. And I just feel your experience and the way that you hold that expression in someone or that part of someone in such a mature and yeah validating way, I can completely understand how healing it is to bring that into a space where you can play with it, you can understand it, you can face off with it, you can even play, as you said, with that edge of shame that can be there. Is yeah. wow, brilliant.
1: Yes, I think used rightly, that edge can just make it much more hot.
0: Yeah. great. <laughs> I describe that as alchemy. You know, we can alchemize pleasure with feelings of shame, with feelings of rage. Uh, and I see it in my work as one of the ways you can loosen up the hold that those difficult emotions have on you, especially if they are long held in the body. You know, we carry sexual shame from young ages. You were talking about how some of the clients you have have had particular kinks that they've stigmatized themselves around or felt shame around for a long time. And I see it as such a powerful process to bring shame into that, to loosen it up, to make something new out of it. Uh,
1: Gorgeous. And sometimes it's just talking about it. Yeah. Sometimes they say to me, I can't talk to anyone.
2: Mm. You're
1: the only one I can talk to. And... I think just having another person witness you in a non-judgmental way is like a big part of that self-acceptance.
0: Absolutely. I so feel that, you know, I've personally experienced kink to not only be very sexually liberating in terms of my sexual expression, um, but also really healing. And, you know, we've been talking about that already in our conversation, And I imagine there will be listeners tuning in that feel surprised by that, maybe even challenged, especially if we think about that in terms of particular types of kinks. So something that is one of my kinks is age play. And I've really found so much healing in that um, for my inner child uh, in such surprising ways. Um, I wonder, you know, What have you experienced and learnt through your work about the healing that lives within BDSM or what else would you add around that conversation? There's one aspect which you've already talked about in terms of
1: acceptance and having you fully seen Mm. um, and not turned away from in a way that many people probably haven't experienced. But there's also many other ways in which it is therapeutic so one of them is you get so fixed in your normal roles and the hats that you wear in your identity that you've constructed for yourself and kink gives an opportunity to throw that all away to totally change the rules to become someone or something else entirely and that in itself is very Therapeutic. It's escapism, it's pretend, and it helps you, certainly for me, I think, feel less bound in general by society, the rules that we're told, the way things are meant to work. You start to feel more free from all the sort of pressures placed on you, from what other people think of you, and I think it really empowers you to be, you know, in certain times and spaces where it's appropriate to be unashamedly and authentically who you are, or something else, or someone you're not, and playing with that too. So I think that's really cool, and I think that's what a lot of people come for is the escapism. It also really places you in the moment. Mm-hmm. You have to be a hundred percent focused on what you're doing if you're. Subbing, you have to be following your instructions, or if you're experiencing pain or pleasure or whatever it is, again, it really puts you into your body and blocks out all the noise, all the nonsense. And I think when all that other stuff falls away and you can just be with yourself, it can be almost very mindful
2: mm-hmm.
1: and spiritual. Like, I'm not a spiritual person, but I get a lot of spirit- spirituality through my kink play Mm -hmm. through like wielding power and kind of giving pain and pleasure and sort of almost delivering redemption to people who need it and I think that's very powerful for the bottoms as well especially with the a lot of the ritualized aspects of BDSM that allow you to kind of click into that headspace and feel sort of safe and secure and like held in those rituals. There's not enough ritual, I don't think, in daily life. We're all Mm -hmm. just rushing. We all have a schedule. Our phones are going off. And just being able to sit there and be like, now I will kneel and I will put my arms behind my back and I will close my eyes and the collar will be placed around my neck. And then I don't have to make any decisions for a while. Mm. Is really, really cool. Um... What else? Challenge. Some people do it for the challenge. Mm -hmm. So if they can endure a beating, for instance, then A, they might get endorphins, which is similar to runner's high, and that just feels really nice and floaty. But some people really enjoy the achievement of being able to do something that's difficult and prevail through it, and it helps them feel... More strong and powerful, which again they can take that through into their daily lives. Because in BDSM, the submissives have a lot of power. I actually disagree with the whole, submissives have all the power. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very joint energetic exchange because dominants get to have limits as well as submissives, mm-hmm. and that's very important. But you certainly, you consciously get to choose to give up that power. And then the dominant consciously chooses to take that up from you. And being able to do that, to be, have power which you can give away and take back reminds you that you have this power always.
0: Mm, Wow, give away and take back. You just gave me language um, (laughs) that I didn't have that resonates so much. Oh, that piece around challenge I really resonate with that I've never thought about it in those terms but that for me is one of the huge appeals of BDSM because I love to challenge my body I love to challenge my mind it's why I'm drawn to things like completing my Vipassana as my two episodes ago was like I really love to like see what's possible Um, and I so agree with that piece around presence for me a lot of my training and my past experience with sexuality is through, um, the yogic sexuality and tantra, um, lineage. And for me, the coming together of BDSM and then yogic sexuality has been truly mind blowing. And I had never experienced the level of presence of surrender, of energy exchange um before in my life until i found bdsm I like whenever i experience a scene it feels to me like this microcosm <laughs> like we're like we enter this whole other little universe and there's something so powerful about that uh oh I love hearing you talk about this. I'm just like, yes, I love this shit.
1: (laughs) Yes, and there's one other area, which is trauma. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to talk about this specifically because of the tropes Mm -hmm. that trauma causes kinks and very unhelpful narratives from things like Fifty Shades of Grey, which is not written by anyone who knows anything about kink, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, which reinforce that. And I don't believe that kinks are caused by traumas. But I do believe that kinks can be a container to re-script past traumas and to take control over them. And I definitely have clients who come to me who have had traumatic experiences and they're able to engage with them differently while we do it in a consensual kink space where they know that they can as I said, take back that power at any time, which was something they were unable to do the first time those events happened to them. Mm -hmm. So I think BDSM is not therapy, but it can be therapeutic. Mm -hmm. But it's something to engage with carefully. When I have clients come to me, I ask them medical questions, and if they have like PTSD or anything, I will ask them about that and ask them about their triggers, so that either we avoid them or we carefully integrate them. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of monitor how they're responding to that.
2: Mm.
1: But yeah, one of them said to me that he'd found it so much better than going to a psychologist. And yeah. I was like, well, don't stop going to the psychologist. But, you know, it's good to have many ways to address difficulties. And I think BDSM can be one of them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Wow. Wow. I'm so glad you brought this trauma piece into the conversation because that is so important. And I have worked with people that have felt re-traumatized by kinky interactions that they've had. And for me, my approach personally, but also when I'm talking about you know, kinky fantasies and desires with my clients is to talk about safety. So not just physical safety, but we, I think of this as something that we can oscillate between. So if you have that foundation of safety inside of yourself, inside of the relationship, if you go to the edge, if you go into something that feels challenging, Uh, you want a place to be able to come back to if that feels like it goes very close to the line or perhaps over the line and for me safety precedes surrender so if I don't feel that foundation of safety like I can't actually let myself really let go if I'm you know bottoming or also like really step into the intimidating intimidating nature of dominating as well um Hmm, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yes, you definitely have to create the safety. Um, That's why we do a long negotiation before scenes. Mm -hmm. And we make sure we keep up good communication during scenes because kink can go wrong, it can be bad. And obviously, the more we do to reduce the chance of that, the better. But with good communication and with being aware of the bottom, It shouldn't go too drastically wrong. And obviously there's some things which can't be done safely, which we just do not do. Some things have to remain in the fantasy realm, and that's okay.
0: So I have, as I've alluded to and still do, find being dominant really hard. It's something that brings up feelings of embarrassment for me. So I used to identify purely as a submissive. I love being submissive very much. And in the last maybe three years, I've realized I actually have the desire to also dominate. And for me, a big part of that was realizing how I'd never even considered that I could be dominant being a woman in this world. Uh, I felt how much that felt imposed on me, even though there was so much pleasure and enjoyment for me in that role. And so that was part of my desire to dominate, was wanting to challenge those gender roles and also just wanting to feel what that feels like in my body. Off air, when we spoke last week, you shared how when you started off... um, as a submissive and then cross the bridge to becoming a dominant you also found that intimidating and I'd love to hear about your experience crossing that bridge and any lessons you learned along the way for listeners that may resonate
1: yes it was definitely very scary to think about (laughs) I think the first time I arranged to do it with my first partner after I'd been a submissive for a long time I was very very nervous but i found that because i had submissive experience that's actually a fantastic foundation for being more dominant and i firmly believe that all the best dominants have got decent submissive experience it's also something that i often observe males tend to start off as either subs or doms, and not everyone but they generally stay more fixed Whereas females often start off as submissives and end off as dominance.
0: Interesting.
1: (laughs) Which is um, very interesting. And I think a lot of it is being able to build that confidence over time and being able to overcome the roles society casts us in and then that being really powerful and compelling and wanting to lean into that more. So... I think anyone who's subbed can do, but it's okay if you haven't subbed as well. <laughs> so I don't think just being a submissive is any sort of impediment. In fact, I think it's a really good learning because you know what things feel like, you know what the headspace is like, you know what a good scene feels like and what a bad scene feels like, and it's all very personal, but at least it gives you a blueprint And that blueprint, then you can work off and adapt for other people that you might play with. So for me, a lot of it was seeing other people doing it,
2: Mm.
1: realizing that there's not one true way. Sometimes on um, FetLife, you'll see people talking about true doms or true subs, and that's total nonsense Mm -hmm. there's no such thing it's whatever you choose to play with at each moment in time and there's so many ways to be a dom so I think one of the things I realized that helped me build my confidence is that there's always a style which works for you and some things might feel awkward or embarrassing for you and that's okay you don't have to do them you can be sort of your authentic version of your dom self whatever that looks like. And you also don't have to take it too seriously. Mm. Because it's play, if you say something silly, or if you laugh, that's fine. You can just have that as part of the scene. And I think that helps with some of the embarrassment aspect of it. And just, yeah, not taking it too seriously. Big part of it for me was learning the technical skills. Mm -hmm. Because if you're like, I technically know how to spank someone, and it... Is a lot more complicated than hitting someone yes. on the ass. <laughs> um, if you have those technical skills, that also gives you some confidence. Mm-hmm. And you can just do the sort of technical aspects. And then you can kind of do the scene craft around that later after you've built your confidence in just physically, I can, you know, hit them in the right place and I can do this play safely. So that's what i found really useful and that helped me because you can start off almost as just top bottom rather than dom sub Mm -hmm. which is a little bit less intimidating because generally they should always be feedback from the submissive or the bottom to the top or the dom anyway but if it's a a top bottom is more a flat dynamic so there's Say, if you're doing a spanking scene, the top would be the person doing the spanking, the bottom would be the person getting spanked. But there's not necessarily a power differential between the two. They're still playing as equals, whereas it becomes dom-sub when there's that conscious transfer of power, where the submissive is more, I'll do what you say, rather than hit me exactly like this five times and then swap over to this other implement and hit me on the other side four times. Which is quite equal. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a nice way to ease into it as well. And for me, just being amongst kinksters, seeing other people doing it, seeing that they were just people, and I'm just a person, and if they can do it, I can do it. And seeing people who looked more like me and who I identified with modelling a role for me that resonated with me, Because my mother was a very sort of timid woman, so I was always really attracted to kind of powerful female role models, Mm -hmm. and I was delighted to find those in the scene. But powerful doesn't mean being nasty. Powerful doesn't mean shouting. Powerful doesn't necessarily mean being degrading. It can just mean kind of creating that space for the submissive to be their vulnerable submissive self with you. And so... Yeah, there's lots of ways to be and lots of approaches. And there's no right way, but that means as long as you're not playing dangerously, there's also no wrong way. And if everyone's happy,
0: awesome. So you've spoken a little bit about negotiating a scene. Uh, I wonder if you want to share what that means for the listeners that might not already know, and if you also have any tips for actually doing so.
1: Yes, absolutely. So, this obviously depends on the relationship that you have with someone that you're playing with. And obviously, the negotiations I do in my professional world are very different to what you do with a romantic partner. Mm-hmm. But it's good to cover off the sort of some of the key points, regardless. So, I always start with the basic physical safety stuff. So, understanding any medical conditions that the bottom might have understanding say if they have a sore knee and that means they can't kneel or they have diabetes or they have a propensity to fainting so then you don't want to tie them standing up on something and just go through all that I also ask them basically what they like what they don't like and I will elaborate on that with them a lot I think it's really good to get lots of detail Hmm. and have as much information as possible at the beginning and occasionally they say I don't know and that's always like the worst for me as a (laughs) top or dorm to hear and because then you're in a riskier position so it's really great if your submissive has some idea normally they have some idea why they're in front of you and sometimes they're embarrassed to say but I try and extract it out of them
2: Mm.
1: because the more information I have the more fun they will have which is what I tell them So understanding their likes, dislikes, their level of experience with different types of play, when they've last done it, if they've got any triggers, either sort of physical or verbal, any hard limits. I always ask about that but really I focus on what they like rather than doing anything other than what they hate. Mm -hmm. Certainly at the beginning because then you know they'll have fun and When they're playing in an area, they're comfortable at the beginning. That helps create that sense of safety that you were talking about as well. I normally set up a safe word just because it's standard practice. I normally use red Mm -hmm. because I want it to be a word that they can say under stress, that something will come easily to the top of their mind. So I let them choose it. But if they don't have one, which they normally don't, I assign them one. But we shouldn't need the safe word. Our communication should be better that the submissive does not have the safe word, that we've modified what we're doing if it's not working before they reach that point. Mm -hmm. But I always like to have it just in case. I'll often set up a way to communicate pain levels. So a one to 10 numbered scale some people use. Some people use traffic lights, so green. They're happy. They might be in pain, but they can tolerate it for a while. Amber, still okay, but approaching tolerance Mm -hmm. limits. And then obviously red is too much. And I encourage them to proactively give me the colours. I check, but especially at the beginning, it's good for them to tell you if they've gone from a green to an orange, for instance, and if you know as soon as they've passed that threshold versus when you check then that's more useful. So we do a lot of setting up how our communication will work, basically, and that will vary depending on the type of scene. And I think that's about it. I have some sort of etiquettes and protocols. I have a way that I like them to address me. So that's quite a nice thing to set up the power exchange. I like to be addressed as my lady, so I tell them to address me as my lady. Mm -hmm. I tell them the rules... The no touching me, no orgasms without permission. That's a very important rule. (laughs) Normally, it's very encouraging for good behavior. They have to earn their rewards, but (laughs) it makes them all the sweeter. And then I give them a chance to ask me any questions, give me any more information, and then we all go into play. But really, the negotiation continues the whole time because we're always communicating. And it's just finding a sexy way to kind of communicate rather than be like, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? Or like a sexy way to get consent for, say if you want, they want to be strap on, you can say, you want my cock, don't you? Beg for my cock rather than, can I put my <laughs> cock inside you now? <laughs> but, you know, anything is fine. And it's, it's whatever works for the person but there's lots of fun ways to keep that communication going in scene, which don't ruin the scene, which I think is the important takeaway. Mm.
0: Oh, thank you for those delicious examples. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you shared about the importance of submissives or bottoms being forthcoming with information about their heart limits, their likes, their dislikes. I have felt in my experience being a submissive how often I will come into that role before the scene has even started and I find it hard to even access that information and it's been an ongoing practice for me to actually be like, okay, no, no take a minute, like be a good submissive, give good quality information. (laughs) But that was definitely really counterintuitive to me at the start, especially.
1: Yeah, I think it often is. And that's why I make a lot of effort to really encourage Mm. as much information flowing from them to me as possible. Because, yeah, they normally just want to be a good boy or a good girl. And you know, try really hard for their DOM and often they will actually be quite hesitant to safe word. So I really try and encourage the traffic lights and the safe wording if needed just to make sure they are communicating when they need to. Because probably actually the biggest danger is submissives going into subspace Mm -hmm. and agreeing to things that they shouldn't. So that's why we discuss the parameters up front. So you should never add an element of play that you haven't pre-negotiated.
2: Mm.
1: And so the negotiations and scenes examples I gave were for moving on to an element that you'd already pre-discussed with them because there are some some people who not every dom is ethical mm. and there obviously have been cases of abuse in the scene that I'm aware of and sort of renegotiating in scene once the sub is in what's called subspace, Mm -hmm. which is normally a suggestible state. is not how an ethical dom should go. Mm.
0: When I'm in subspace or even, you know, not even that far into a scene, I can go very nonverbal, but my body will be giving a lot of yes feedback. It's like yes to everything. Everything is gooey and delicious and wonderful. Uh, So I love that you really hit home that point about not adding in anything new into the scene that hasn't been pre-negotiated, chef's kiss. (laughs) So you've shared so much incredible advice with us already. I wonder if there's anything you might add uh, for people wanting to explore new kinds of power dynamics in their play. So what might be a simple, easy, less intimidating kind of starting point?
1: A really nice starting point, I think, is exactly where I started. Mm. So just putting on some music, blindfolding your partner, Or even just asking them to close their eyes. You don't actually need any equipment, but equipment can be fun. And safely tying them down, or even just telling them to stay still. And if you're, say, a female who's doing this to a male, and this is normally not the role you take, even just having them lying there passively with their eyes closed while you do things to their body can be a really nice way to start and then you don't have to say anything weird you don't have to have them kneel you don't have to kind of do any acting you can just even do things you normally do with them like I don't know give them a blowjob but they are just quiet and passive and you are very much doing it to them rather than you know they don't move your head or anything, they just take whatever it is you decide to bestow upon them. And that immediately puts you in the driving seat and gives you the power. Other things to do is think about what you want and it doesn't have to be anything crazy or interesting, even just, you'd like a glass of water. But instead of saying, please would you get me a glass of water? You just remove the request. And you make it into an instruction. And you just say, get me a glass of water. And you can make it meaner or ruder. Or, you know, add other words or terms. But you don't actually have to do any of that. It can be very simple. And a small change in attitude and a small change in wording. Which immediately puts you in charge. And then, assuming they're enthusiastically participating, which they should be they'll go get the glass of water and you have successfully dominated them and then you can just move forward from there i think that less is definitely more Mm -hmm. and it can be quite subtle and yeah it doesn't have to be a ridiculous performance it can just be you just imagining that i don't know you're the ceo they're your employee and you want something done and you're just gonna tell them that in a straightforward way and they're going to go do it. And then Life. If you want to learn, learning can be really is such a good way to build confidence. Have a look on Life, because they have events, they have workshops. You can go with your partner. You don't have to play with other people. You don't have to play at all. You can just watch depending on what the sort of event in question is. And that's a really good way to learn more. Once you've, If you've got the confidence to kind of go out in public with it. And not everyone does. And that's okay. And there's obviously loads of online resources as well. I would, I'd just be cautious of BDSM porn. Because they generally don't show the negotiations. They generally don't show the aftercare. Which is a really important aspect. Mm-hmm. And it's generally more extreme than most people do in practice. But obviously... It varies a lot. But I often get clients come to me and they've been watching all this porn and they want to be spat on and screamed at. And I'm like, that's fine. But that's not the norm. And people in BDSM relationships often don't want things which are that extreme. But everyone varies, obviously. But, Mm. yeah. It's like lots of options and it can just be kept very simple And then you just have that little place where you start out from and then you kind of tentatively explore from there as feels good for you and your partner. Mm. And if it doesn't work, that's okay. You can always try again later. You can always just have a laugh. It can be a hilarious story. I have lots of very embarrassing tales (laughs) um, from scenes which have gone awry. So I think, yeah, making sure the stakes aren't set higher than they actually are is also useful
0: Mm, I love that permission to not have to have a mind-blowingly sexy experience I too have my own collection of embarrassing quote-unquote fails but they're not fails at all they're just kind of these funny human moments where I had a fantasy for something loved it turned it turned me on when i had it in the fantasy realm and then actually living into that i was like I didn't really like that <laughs> yeah there's definitely a fantasy reality yeah. gap
1: <laughs> which i often talk to people about in their first sessions mm-hmm. of doing this in reality won't be the same as what you've imagined and that's okay and if you don't like it that's okay mm and I think that's really important. But sometimes it's good to know. Sometimes you can try something and not like it, but you've learned something. Yeah. And so it's still been a valuable experience.
0: Yes, absolutely. I I think about how often we center performance, so not just, like, theatrical performance, but kind of sexual performance. So I've got to have, like, a a hard cock the entire time, I've got to come this many times, I've got to like squirt, make it rain. (laughs) You know, we have like a lot of us center that in our sexual experiences. And I really love instead centering play, as we've discussed, also centering pleasure. It takes so much pressure off our bodies to perform in a certain way because pressure ultimately dims the sense of pleasure that we have and I think a real part of that is what you've spoken to is letting yourself try things that you're curious about and letting it be okay if it's a bit of a meh experience yeah and just seeing where a scene takes you as well mm.
1: sometimes it's good to have a bit of flexibility to just if a particular direction say your bottom is responding really well to I don't know nipple play just sort of spending more time feeling into that and just seeing how that goes rather than being too rigid on scripting every moment. Mm -hmm. I occasionally do get scripts, which is fine, but normally I always plan with some play and some flex to take it where it wants to go Mm -hmm. and really try and listen to the subs, verbal and physical cues. As you mentioned, body language is very important. We obviously always get verbal consent, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, but I always try and link in those verbal cues with the physical, so that if they do, as I say, become less verbal, as you mentioned, then I can still be sure they're happy.
0: Wow. Lady Catherine, I am just blown away by you. You're amazing. I can feel just the depth of your experience and the depth of the respect you have for what it is that you do and the people that you work with. I have thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, sharing your wisdom and your magic with us. I wonder if there's anything else you'd like to leave the listeners with. Probably just one of my sayings,
1: which is life is an adventure and the world is a playground. Mm. And you can take from that. Whatever you want.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I imagine that there are going to be people listening to this, wanting to connect with you. Uh, How can they do so if they desire? I have a website, LadyCatherine.co.nz. Easy. Too easy. Thank you so much, Lady Catherine. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. See you again next week. Bye. <laughs>